don't be scared to take risks. So that is the biggest thing that I've seen that have differentiated where I have wound up from, you know, what could have just been a standard career path. And there's nothing wrong with a standard career path. There's not. But I will say I very much have enjoyed becoming an entrepreneur and working for myself. And I have a very satisfactory work-life balance, which I cannot say for many people or what when I was working for, you know, a traditional employer, I have really enjoyed that experience. And if that is something you're interested in, probably gonna have to take some risks. It's going to be scary. It's going to be weird. You're not going to know what the right step is that that's, that's okay. The whole point is don't be scared to make a mistake and take the risk anyways. This is found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors. And most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital. And on today's show, I am thrilled to have Leah Pagnozzi, who is the CEO and founder of RugDoc. Welcome to the show, Leah. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Always fun to like chat with people, especially people in my community. There you go. And you're here right in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. So uh, that excited I am. to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Course. So, you know, I know we're eventually going to get into some fun stuff. We're going to talk your company. We're going to talk about RugDoc. We're going to talk all probably a little bit about decentralized finance and crypto exchanges and DeFi safety and education, all that fun stuff. We'll get there. But to start off, one of the things we love on Found in the Rockies is great stories and origin stories and where people came from and how they got to where they are. Your story is pretty incredible, pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. I tend to think that it's just the standard pipeline, but you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what all entrepreneurs think. Like, isn't everybody just story just as crazy and wild as mine? But I'd love you to take us back to the beginning and kind of like what set you on this path to where you are today as far back as you want to go. <laughs> Got it. Okay. As far back as I want to go. So I'm originally from a small Rust Belt town in upstate New York, where there is not a ton going on, but has a strong sense of community, much like Bozeman. So when it was time for me to you know, turn 18 and, and live my life, I decided that the best way to succeed and do something interesting outside of my town would be to go to college, right? But of course, there is the question of how do you pay for college? So I joined <laughs> the army as everybody does. You know, you just say, wow, I really need to pay for college. I guess I'll join the military because, you know, we're 17 at that point. We don't really have a full brain. And we're like, that's the option. Also, you know, your recruiter comes to your high school and they're like, this is the best thing you can possibly do for yourself. And you're like, yeah, why not? This seems fine. Ever there was an origin story that I could identify with, that's my path. That's what happened to me too. You know, small rust about town and well, Pennsylvania, not upstate New York, but still same origin same basically. Region. Yeah. Yep. Join the military, yeah. see the world, pay for school, have a fun Pretty life. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. That, that was the story I was told. So I decided to go for it and I joined the army and I joined a specific program in the army where you enlist first and you go to basic and you do that right after high school. But then after, while well, you're going to college and they're paying for your college 100% upfront, as was promised, you do ROTC through the program and then you are still doing your enlisted duty as a reservist during your college career. But when you graduate, the promise is you get to commission, you're an officer, super fun. So that was what I was doing. 
However, as I was doing my reservist duty and my army career, a couple years into that, right at the tail end of college, uh, my retina spontaneously detached. I was actually on a field training exercise at the time, but it was oh. probably not caused by the field training exercise. It was just wonderful, beautiful timing. Oh. Yeah. So what, what is, not to go back into too much, but that's, is that a painful thing for that to happen or is it just scary? Is it like? Sure. It's actually not painful, but it is strange. It's very strange. Sure. So basically your vision rapidly changes and you get all these peculiar lights and floaters and waving and almost like you're looking through a windshield underwater. So you just uh -huh. get very peculiar, strange vision and, you know, maybe you feel a little nauseous from it, but it's not intrinsically painful. Just I mean, concerning. my first, my first thought would be like, did I just eat some mushroom accidentally while I was in the field? Like what? It, it's, it must be very, it was probably confusing, right? Like It was very confusing. So of course I book it to the eye doctor. They take a quick look in my eyes and they say, oh, guess what? You're going for surgery now. Wow. So yeah. So, so that kind of ended my illustrious military career. My retina is detached mm. because then I was no longer eligible for service. So at this point I was kind of panicking because plan A blew up. And so I was like, wow, I really didn't consider a plan B because I am, you know, 20, 21 at this point. So I'm like, plan A is gone. What's plan B? Um, during college, I was in school as an engineer at Stony Brook University. So I decided, talking to some of my professors, let's plan B will be a PhD. That seems fine. My grades were good. And I was already doing lab research at the time. So I was like, you know what? I think I can maybe just try this because very, very <laughs> under, very underachieving plan B. Sure. Yeah. I just get the PhD. <laughs> well, the thing that really factored in much like my military decision was who's going to give me money. Right. And so uh, if I were to do a master's program, I would have to pay the money. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a bad time. But if I do a PhD, <laughs> they pay you money. It's not a lot, but they pay you the money. So it's not a negative out. It's a positive. So I was like, well, this seems like the best plan B I can think of on like last minute notice. Let's go for this. So very I entrepreneurial of you. It's very, very <laughs> pretty much. Very, yeah. I did like a risk. I did a whole chart. I had a whole Excel spreadsheet that was just like pros and cons of like various plan B's. And then I did a second spreadsheet when I was like, I think plan, like PhD seems to have the most pros in the, in the bucket. So then I was like, all right, what do I even get a PhD in? So I like literally listed out again, another set of pros and cons wow. of like different majors, like skills that I had, interests I had, what overlapped it. And I, it was a yep. full decision, multi-attribute decision matrix, very military officer <laughs> of you to do that. No, well done. It was, that's exactly what I did. And I was like, you know what? PhD in biomedical engineering. That's the one. So that's what I applied for. And very Cornell was dumb enough to accept me. So I decided oh, get to out of here. So <laughs> yep. humble of you. I know. Okay. I know. Go big red. So <laughs> Uh, so I did my PhD there, and okay. I studied the micromechanics of heart valve disease. So in your heart, there are four chambers. And the major one is going to be your aortic valve, and that's mm -hmm. going to bring the blood between your heart and your lungs. But then the second most important one is your mitral valve. And that one goes between the two chambers of the heart. And basically, if something goes wrong, and it's not uncommon for something to be wrong with your mitral valve as you age, and it's also not an uncommon birth defect, your heart valves basically start to get fibrotic. They fail to close and form a tight mm. seal like you want a valve to have when it's you know pushing blood between your heart. It's kind of an and important seal, yes. A little bit. You kind of want that seal. 
And basically, it just causes a lot of pressure inside your heart, and it causes enlargement of the heart, and that causes heart failure and death. So I started to study that and how you could prevent or potentially reduce or, you know, way in the future, maybe reverse mitral valve disease. And I wanted to do it in a non-surgical manner. So I was looking at how you can trick the cells in your mitral valve to thinking they're in a different environment because cells are very tactile. They feel their environment. They poke around, they pull things, they stretch Mm. things, they touch each other. And so if you can trick these cells into touching or thinking they're touching something else, you can actually change their gene expression. So, right. Wow. I know. That, yeah, that crazy. seems like what a nuance mm-hmm. of like research. Incredible. Yeah. Yep. So I started figuring out how to apply these micro forces to cells or make them hypersensitive to forces and how that changes their gene expression and how that makes them less fibrotic. So that was what it was. It, I mean, all PhDs are incredibly specific, but this one was course. like very specific. Yeah, specific even in the world of PhDs. So what would the typical path then be? Like you're studying this, you're, you've done the decision matrix, like where would this lead you then? Would you like start a medical device company? Would you like, where do you think this could have led? Mm-hmm. Or at so the time, origi- where did you think it would lead? Yep. Yeah. So originally I was interested in doing uh, the MD PhD program. So I would have graduated and become a physician slash researcher. Mm-hmm. And done that. But as I went through my medical rotations, talked to other MD, PhDs, I quickly realized that you actually give up most of your research and you just become a physician and you just spend extra time doing, you know, more school and you don't really excel in the research, which was sad to me. So I just went all in on the PhD and I figured, yeah, I could have worked for a medical company. I could have worked for a drug company. I could have gone into academia and been a professor, which was my original goal. I was like, you know, being a professor would be pretty cool. I love teaching. So I figured academia and research. Yeah, research. Yeah. Yeah. Academia and research was where my heart was initially set. However, when you're doing a PhD, you're basically, it's like an apprenticeship. So you're doing an apprenticeship for an academic career. And all you do in my specific field is lab work all day, every day. So you're just in the lab doing experiments all day, every day. That's your job. That's why they pay you. You're in the lab doing work yeah. for them writing papers, getting grants, getting fellowships, just doing constant paperwork grind and research grind. I didn't love that because I was spending, you know, 50, 60 or more sometimes. Mm. Like, you know, I wouldn't sleep some nights because I would just be in lab all night, just doing the same thing alone in a lab all day, every day. And I'm a pretty social person. So that was really starting to get to me. You're probably really Um, good with a pipette at this point of your career. Really good at a pipette. (laughs) Really good at a pipette. I actually started to get some carpal tunnel towards me. Oh, gee. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to rub. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I, you know, towards the end of my PhD, I was like, well, you know, maybe academia actually isn't for me because it's kind of lonely. And, Hmm. you know, you're just on this relentless grant cycle. Not that that's a bad thing, but it was just frustrating for me personally. Sure. I'm sure um, some people find comfort and fulfillment mm-hmm. in that. And that's that's great. Good for them. But not you. So so our listeners at this point of the episode are probably thinking, oh, okay, there's a natural flow here. They less said something about rug doc. It's probably a medical med tech company, right? Nope. nope. Okay. Nope. All right. Not. Continue. Nope. Continue. Nope. Yep. Yep. We're not, we're not. We did not go into medicine, in fact. <laughs> okay. Everybody thought I would. Uh-huh. My whole life, I did not. So, so what happened next? I leave academia. And I, again, pull out the decision matrix because I'm really, I, I love my decision matrices. 
And I decided to, you know, I was like, well, who's going to give me the best quality of life, the best benefits, and pay me the most money for my degree? Because now I have this degree. I should probably Mm -hmm. use it. Mm -hmm. And that came out with law. Right. Law? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Law? Law? Law. I did not see that coming. I did not see that coming. So I went into law. I practiced intellectual property prosecution for Wilson Sonsini out in Silicon Valley. Little known fact, because this is such a niche area of law, IP prosecution and just IP law in general is highly technical, especially when you're talking about these like very specific companies like drug companies or medical device companies or, you know, various military contractors, uh, you know, all these different companies that pursue patents and argue with the government about their patents in these hyper-technical areas. Um, you need to speak their language. And it's a lot easier to train a scientist in law than a lawyer mm. in science. As it Interesting. Out. And I would imagine like, you know, there's obviously like JD MBAs. There's probably not like a JD MD. Like that doesn't exist, right? No, or a JD PhD. It, it, it can yeah. happen, but it's highly unusual and it's not a joint program. It's like you did a JD and then you did a PhD in something else or a PhD in a JD. Right. So this is the path. Train these technical experts to be lawyers to work with the lawyers, whatever it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what you do. Yep. So they basically apprentice you again all over, you know, but they pay you a lot more than PhD does. So (laughs) day one, they'll start you as a scientific advisor where you're working alongside the attorneys. Then you graduate and you become a patent agent. And now you can write your own patents and prosecute your own patents, Mm. but you're not quite an attorney yet. So you can't practice other parts of the law and you're, and you're a little limited in your scope. And then they'll make you take the bar exam or they'll throw you through a JD program, whatever they want you to do according to the state you're practicing in, and you become a full-on patent attorney. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. I worked for Wilson Sonsini, like I said, out in Silicon Valley. I was a biotech specialist. So I did the big law life for a few years. How was that? Yeah. What did you think of the Valley? Did you like that ecosystem? Did you like it? It, had, it was very interesting. So, you know, Decision Matrix made me go to it because it was like pay benefits seemed to be the best one. Funny thing, you don't wind up using your benefits because you're constantly writing patents and you're constantly taking meetings and you're living a big law life, which is also similar lifestyle hours to a PhD. Instead of a lab, you're in front of a screen, basically. (laughs) Correct. Correct. However, you're dealing with really interesting clients now. So I was a lot more social because now I was talking to all these founders, right? So I was talking to all these startups, to mature companies. You know, I got to really see the full breadth from like A to Z of how all of these tech comes together and how Mm -hmm. it intersects with law and business and fundraising and portfolio protections and just all these really interesting elements that I never even thought about before. Mm -hmm. So that was really eye-opening. And from there, I decided, well, I kind of want to be an entrepreneur now. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but I think this seems really, really interesting. Oh, cool. So the inspiration came really from your your clients. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Because I was looking at them leading these very interesting lives and really pursuing their passions, which was what I was after the whole time. I wanted to pursue something that I was passionate about and that I could build a lifestyle around, right? So Yeah. So when you started to get that spark, what was the natural, did you have any sort of natural drive or tendency towards an industry? Because like I would think Mm -hmm. with your background, 
like it would seem like me- the medical field would be a natural place to be an entrepreneur for somebody like you. Is that totally that okay? Yeah, yeah. So again, whipped out the decision matrix, and I started. <laughs> yep, <laughs> common theme in my life, and uh-huh. I it kind of pointed towards you know one of the possibilities would be start some form of a biotech company, but with my expertise really being in this mitral valve disease and micromechanics mm. and genetics. It's really hard to spin up a startup around that because I wasn't doing something like knee implants. I was doing this very kind of cutting edge niche genetic engineering meets mechanical engineering field. Mm. So, you know, I really was interested in that, but I was like, I don't think I could come up with a viable product or a company around this on any sort of single individual scale. Maybe mm-hmm. if I was like, you know, Johnson and Johnson or Stryker or someone like that, could I? Yeah, I'd totally. Sure. Cause I would have lots of humans and funds to devote to it. Deep but pockets. starting, right. But, but bootstrapping that was not going to be feasible. So I looked at my other skill set and I was like, well, hmm, military, what'd that give me? You know, a couple things, but nothing that was really translating at that point. During my PhD, though, I thought ahead and I realized I was going to be in beautiful Ithaca, New York for five to seven years. The Finger Lakes region. The Finger Lakes region. I love Ithaca. Yeah. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. (laughs) So I bought a house. Because you can buy outside of Ithaca a very cheap house in a little town called Freeville, New York. A little bit of a commute campus, but you know, I could buy something very affordable as, you know, a person who had minimal means at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And it would be a lot of work and it was gonna be an absolute dump, but I bought a house when I was, you know, in my mid twenties. Nice. It was a five bedroom farmhouse from eighteen sixty eight and it was wow. basically falling over which is why I got it for $70,000. <laughs> what a steal. Well, I, I haven't seen steal. it, but yeah. <laughs> it was rough. It was really rough. There's a reason even in Ithaca, New York, it was $70,000. I picture like, like in Montana when you drive across like the interstate and you see some of these old barns that are like leaning and like the roof is barely yeah. still up. Yeah. Is it Was it like that bad or almost that It bad? was like two steps above that. It wasn't full okay. at that point, but it was getting to the, it was getting there. It was starting what? to lean. What and, project? Yeah, yeah. So I saved rent. Um, sure. That was my goal. I saved on rent, but I uh, then had to rebuild a house. So when I wasn't spending all night in lab, I was spending all night tearing out walls, pulling up floors, replacing cabinets, YouTube open, learning how to tile. I renovated this whole house over my like six-year period. Hard skills. Yeah. 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 So I learned how to renovate houses, which people look at me and they're like, would never assume. But yes, I learned how to renovate houses. Any, any similarities to being in the lab? I just to throw it out there, like renovating a house, like, is it anything? Totally actually. Okay. So you, uh, much like all of my lab work, nobody really tells you what you're supposed to do. Oh. They just say, here are your tools. Here's your materials figure out what your end goal is. They don't even tell you what the end goal is. They say, you have to figure that out for yourself. Like you have to go list your end goals. You have Mm -hmm. to figure out what you don't know. And then you have to fill in the gaps with how to know the things you don't know and then do the thing, right? That's the whole point of a PhD. Learning what you don't know, learning how to learn what you don't know. So you got a PhD in renovation, basically. I got a PhD in renovation at the same time. So that's exactly what I did. I got my PhD in renovation and it was a lot of YouTube and talking to some friends who used to run construction companies to like walk me through the really weird stuff. But at the end of the day, 
my $70,000 house when I sold it and moved on to greener pastures in Silicon Valley was worth $270,000. Wow. What right? an increment. Yeah. Right. So those are like, know, that's again, like VC fund returns in terms of cash on cash. Multiple. <laughs> that's like a good vintage VC fund right there. Yeah. Yep. I mean, again, it took me six years and a whole lot of time and a, quite a bit of my own funds. But yeah, so I sold that sucker and I was the rare PhD student who actually had a little bit of a nest egg on graduation. And that felt good because I was like, did, I, did that just happen? Did I just like yeah. make a lot of money? I just made like real money for the first time in my life. Like, you know, we're not talking about eating cheese sandwiches here. Like I can go to a <laughs> restaurant. I go get my ramen at a ramen house now, not right. out of a styrofoam cup. Let me tell yep. you. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And, you know, at that point, I, I was also able to afford like a nice apartment in San Francisco. Wow. I didn't just have to live in, you know, my shack again, like my leaning shack. Yeah, sure. Um, you had a down payment at this point, right? Like, which is I, often I the biggest challenge well, for like homeowners. I didn't buy in San Francisco because that, oh, okay. that, was, that was just way too, I mean, I was in okay, okay. San Francisco fair. at peak SF prices. Oh, okay. Fair. Like yeah. this isn't like the now SF prices or like 1990 prices. This was like about as expensive as it got. Touche. So, so you were like one tenth of your way to a down payment right, basically. Right, right, okay, right. Yeah. Right. It was a tenth of the way to a down payment and I could all rent, right. but I could rent something like pretty reasonable. So yeah. that, that felt good. So anyways, on, back to the decision matrix, I'm trying to figure out what do I do to be an entrepreneur? And I was like, well, I can renovate houses. And that had a lot of really good returns associated with that house. So I was like, you know what? Real estate. Real estate's the one. So I dug deep and out of my skills, I was like, this one seems to be the one to try. Also, it has a pretty low barrier to entry for being an entrepreneur because there's so many real estate professionals out there in so many different ways. There's so many resources. And, you know, it's just, it's a little bit more approachable than a lot of entrepreneurs who, who sit down and they say, okay, what is my novel idea? It's real estate. Mm -hmm. You don't need a novel idea. You just need uh. to find your niche and figure out what you're good at in this probably fairly established tract and carve your own little place out. So that's what I did. It's, it's a great, great advice for entrepreneurs. Find your niche, find, find your, your superpower, niche. right? Like, what do you love? What can you do better? Small, simple, better than anybody else. It's that yep. easy. Exactly. Like I didn't have to recreate the wheel. I just had to figure out what can I be really good at? And for me, since I had a lot of analytical experience, it was honestly running a lot of analytics that are not common in real estate figuring out migration paths, figuring out emerging mm -hmm. areas, truly emerging areas, mm -hmm. and then buying houses that need a lot of love, renovating the houses so that I would get a rapid equity gain in these fast-moving emerging markets, mm -hmm. and then turn them into vacation rentals. So there's a couple niches in there. So sure. one is the, the type of house. You know, I figured out what specific types of houses fit this type of market, for specific demographics. For me, I go after the, I'll call it approachable luxury market. So these aren't people who are spending $10,000 a night on a house. They don't need a private chef, but they want a really nice vacation and they are looking mm -hmm. for views and they're looking for an experiential stay. They're looking for prime access. So if it's on the lake, they want the lake house. If it's on big sky, they want the ski and ski out. It, it's that sure. sort of thing. But yeah. you can take the whole family, like grandma to the kids. Everybody can load on up and like take a nice experiential stay somewhere. The next was, where are these emerging markets? So I'm looking at, like, where are we growing quickly in the United States? Uh -huh. And then 
where people are growing quickly, where do they regionally vacation? So where can people take a three-day vacation? Or, you know, where are they going for Labor Day, right? Interesting. So really the intersection of, it's not just growth, but it's growth and leisure so that (laughs) now you're building equity value in a place that even if for whatever reason, seasonal vacation, whatever cash flow, you want to offload it, well, it's already appreciated significantly because this is where people are moving. So, ah. Yep. So I was looking for where can I... Yep. So I was looking for where can I compound like fast equity gains because emerging region with, like you said, cash flow. Where are you vacationing in these like fast growing regions? And before people in Bozeman hate me, no, I'm not buying the cul-de-sac house. I'm not buying your like you know, three bedroom <laughs> single family home. We That's know, not we what know, I yeah. do. Yeah. Save um, Bozeman. We're good. Yeah. Okay. Save Bozeman. That's not what I go after. I am trying to right. figure out again the leisure spots. So where do you, the person who's moved to Bozeman, which is why I'm here now, because it is one of the fastest growing places in the United States. Mm-hmm. So where do people who've moved to Bozeman, where do they ski for a three-day weekend? Mm-hmm. Where do they golf? Where do they go to the lake? Right? Mm-hmm. That's where I'm really focusing. And so I wind up in places like Flathead Lake or Whitefish Lake or big sky, or, you know, that's where I wipe out. Makes sense. So that's so what I'm, I did. I, <laughs> so, and this is this opportunity, obviously seeded when you're getting your PhD in the PhD program, but then you took this with you and evolved the model and evolved it while you were in the Bay Area. Is that right? Is that yep, where it kind of? Absolutely. Yep. All right. So, all right, Leah. So I get it. I think I see where this is all going. So Rug Doc must be a prop tech, real estate tech platform. Yeah. Nope. 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 Wait, wait, what? All right. What's the next step of this journey? What's going on? (laughs) Okay. So here I am now and I'm an entrepreneur and I bought a couple houses. We've renovated them and they're cash flowing. It's it's okay. It's doing well. I'm able to quit my job at Wilson Sonsini. Yay. I'm I'm doing quite well. (laughs) Yeah. I quit the job and I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco still, but you know, I moved to Bozeman and it was a much better quality of life anyways, because I was really... I've been looking to come back to Bozeman since I was 18 and took a road trip through the national parks. Wound up coming through Bozeman, saw it, and I was like, this is where I want to go. I actually applied to grad school at MSU when I was in my plan B. Uh, Well, who knows how that path would have (laughs) taken you down a different... (laughs) Exactly. So relocated to Bozeman, started doing that. And I looked one day and I was like, wow, my portfolio is 100% real estate. That seems unnerving. Because, you know, I was getting very analytical in a lot of things. I'm like, that seems like I shouldn't have 100% of anything in anything. I should probably diversify my portfolio. So, you know, of course, I like started investing in some stocks and, you know, some bonds and, and just a little bit of everything, being a standard person. But then my husband has always been a diehard crypto person. Yep. Mm. Even back in the day. I'm talking like from the moment I met this guy. And we've been together for a while now. Uh-huh. So from the moment I met him in like 2014, I think, he was already deep in the Bitcoin. And I was like, wow. that seems real dumb. That seems like magic internet money. I don't think I want that. <laughs> Thank you kindly. I'm going to go back to lab now. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had a friend when I was at the CIA who was trying to get me into Bitcoin mining in 2009. And I remember having this conversation with him. I was like, what is this? Like, what What are these even, can you buy things with them? Like, I don't get it. Is this like video game money? What is this? And he was like, no, someday it'll be worth something. And I'll be like, worth what? Like a penny or a, a dollar? Like, and I was just like, I don't get this. But yeah, I'd probably be in a little different place right now had I, yeah. yeah. 
taking yeah. them up on that. So I understand. I empathize <laughs> with your early sentiment towards your now. Totally. Yeah. I yeah. saw him doing his thing and he was actually already an entrepreneur, which is why, you know, I saw him like living his own life. And then I saw the Silicon Valley people living their own lives. And I was like, I think I can do this too. And he was really focusing on a lot of just like, how do I build businesses around Bitcoin back in the day? So like Bitcoin ATMs and stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. doing uh, actual in-person exchanges, things like that. So I was watching him do this and still being like, this seems real silly. I mean, like you can live your life and it's clearly like supporting your day-to-day -day needs, but like, I don't need magic money. But then he made me pay for our wedding in magic money. Like he literally loaded up a Bitcoin, like an early Bitcoin debit card and he put some Bitcoin on it and he was like, you want, <laughs> you want the wedding? This how you, this is it. Cause I was a grad oh, student. I didn't wow. have money to pay for our wedding. So he was I just like, it. yeah, he was like, you're, you're going to learn. And you're like, so, so like when most people, when most people say like, like the budget for the wedding is X, your, yours was in, Bitcoin. you know, X Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's like, here's a new one. Bitcoin on this like, you know, prepaid like debit card, go figure it out. <laughs> so you actually had to figure out how to spend it, right? Yes. Like how you pay a vendor. How do you, wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I had to like work on like exchanges and monetizing things. So I was already familiar with crypto and I kind of forgot about it for a few years where I was working in like, you know, Wilson, I could have a conversation about it and, and yeah. you know, talk to people, but like, I wasn't really in it. But I was like, you know, I should throw some of my portfolio into crypto as well. I should allocate some of this. So I started to do that. And what started with like buying and holding some Bitcoin and didn't really have a purpose. All of a sudden, by the time I re-entered crypto these years later, things had a purpose. Because yeah. now these blockchains were buildable. Mm -hmm. When I had first been given like the Bitcoin to, to pay for the wedding, you could just like exchange the Bitcoin for money and that, that was it. Nothing was buildable. You couldn't deploy codes to the blockchain, which mm -hmm. is exactly where we are today. You can mm -hmm. deploy codes, which are kind of like computer programs to the blockchain, mm -hmm. which can control what people do with these decentralized assets. So you can buy and trade, or you can create a program that creates NFTs, or you can create a program that, you know, like controls stock trades. There's all sorts of things you can do and deploy to the blockchain now. And they're all written in this program called Solidity. It's a computer programming mm -hmm. language, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when I re-entered to diversify my portfolio, this was right at the beginning of decentralized finance. So this was like 2019 or so. <clears throat> and now decentralized finance meant that these blockchains were, again, buildable and scalable, that you could deploy things to them. So now that we were in this era, this new era of decentralized finance, I was intrigued because it wasn't just a passive asset anymore. This was an active asset that I could build with. And so I got really into this. So I started trading and buying and directly investing in protocols and buying all of those terrible like shit coins, like all, all the things I did. all Some Doge, you get some Doge totally. coin while you're at 100%, it. Yeah, yeah. I did. Oh yeah. I got all the meme coins, all the silly. <laughs> oh things. yeah. I went hog wild into this. Did you get any F um, NFTs while, while you were at it? I did. Oh yeah. I you got do? some okay, NFTs. Sure. I still have them kicking in my wallet. They're probably worth nothing, but I got them. Hey. <laughs> Maybe one day one of my moon cats will be worth something. I don't know. Ooh. <laughs> moon cats. So I got really into this, but both my husband and I got into it around the same time because we were like, mm -hmm. wow, this is really interesting. We can like build and buy and directly invest it. And it kind of cuts out that middleman. Like, you know how you usually go to a bank, you give the bank your money, the bank takes the money and builds, I don't know, a real estate complex. It builds a new development. It reaps 
90 something percent of the returns and then it gives you two percent right right that's how mm -hmm. our banks work right mm -hmm. well now you can get a hundred percent of whatever you're investing in now there's a chance that your investment is trash it happens all the time in crypto because crypto is full of garbage quite frankly it just and, is and just to <laughs> highlight it too i love i love this lay down because i think this is so great and now is probably a fun time to do this because to do this in the heyday when everybody was talking about it is one thing. To do it now, it's I love it because it's a very real conversation, like help people understand this now that there's this real opportunity. But but the challenge to me here, the highlight is there's a something beautiful about decentralized finance. But the problem is without a centralized without a centralized authority, investors don't really know like what crypt what cryptocurrencies can I trust, what exchanges are like are real versus like not like, and that's at its core, right? That's kind of the problem. That's what you're doing. Yep, that's exactly what right? we right? Now we can say it. That's it now, that's it. Now we can say it. Yep, we do investor-oriented security in the decentralized finance space. So as I was investing in this, and as my husband, as we were getting into this field, we started seeing all these rampant scams because you're right, anybody, now that it's decentralized, anybody can deploy anything to the blockchain. That's the point. There's no middleman. There's no securities. There's no FDIC. There's no insurance. And you, the investor, are now directly investing in, in whatever. And you better hope it's not garbage because if it's garbage, it will either be worth zero dollars or even mm -hmm. worse, it'll be a straight scam and you'll be negative dollars because it'll be stealing from you. So it'll access your private wallets and it'll start draining them because you've now given permission to one of these computer programs to access your funds, thinking that you were investing in something that was going to pay you returns on something. Instead, you gave it permission to drain your wallet and it's written in this obscure computer program. So your average investor is not going to look at it very closely because you just click yes, yes. You're not actually looking at the program at what it can do, the functions that are going into it. But I got into that because I'm an engineer and I'm really weird like that. So I was like, hey, yeah. back to that PhD. I know a lot of computer programming languages. I can learn this one too because my husband, he got scammed. Like our first week of investing in this stuff, he got scammed for an obscene amount of money. I'm not going to even name it. It was bad. Oh. We were very upset. So, so by the way, <laughs> when we first met, I mean, to me, this was as you're laying out what RugDoc does, like this was the big aha moment for me because I was like, well... I was like, Leah, I don't really get it. Like, how can you, how can you assess this? How can you know it? Like, what do you have to, don't you have to read through lines and lines of code? And don't you have to know the code? And like, yep. how can this be accessible to masses? If this is how hard it is to tell, is this a scam or not? And how, what if I miss it? Like I, there was one obscure line of code that I missed. Like, but how do you do that? Like how, go back to the aha moment. Tell me about like how you at your approach to this, which I think is so cool. Sure. So basically, like once, you know, my husband got scammed, we were just like, mm -hmm. well, this is a problem. And we took a close look and we we're like, you know, what? I think if we start to understand the code, if we teach ourselves this programming language, we can go through it and we can actually assess the risk. So that's what I started doing. I taught myself the code. I started going through it line by line. I started understanding the functions, the logic flows of it, literally diagramming stuff out sometimes so I can figure out what function leads to where, what is going to be calling things. And once I learned that, then I could figure out exactly what this program was doing with my funds, what permissions it actually had, where the potential vulnerabilities could be in the logic. Because once I knew the flow, then I could say, oh, but because it doesn't have a block here, I know this thing could potentially, if it was a malicious team, take my funds and, and steal it elsewhere. So what I started doing is reviewing codes for myself 
for my own investments initially, but then other people started asking me because I was, you know, already in deep to these decentralized finance communities, you know, on the Telegram boards and Reddit and Discord communities. And other people started asking me to do it for them too. So basically I opened mm. up a little like request system in, in my own little group and people could come in and request a code. They would provide me the contract, the code to be reviewed. And I would go through it and, you know, figure it out and loop it and figure out what the contract vulnerabilities could be. And then I opened up Twitter to basically be, hey, I found a bad code when I found a bad code. So people wouldn't invest in it. This picked up steam. Mm -hmm. And so I started to have to be more efficient in my process because all of a sudden I was getting like 40 requests a day. I couldn't possibly like review 40 codes in a day manually. That's too much work. So I started having to hire people and train them in reviewing codes like I did. And then I started having to scale up. We started to have to streamline because, you know, now we're getting lots and lots of requests every day from the public. We needed to be able to create our own computer programs to basically start to break these codes down into more discrete intervals so we could be more efficient in our review process. And ultimately, we moved to like a Google Sheets that we would just post our results in. <laughs> and then we just got uh -huh. to, we blew all the data on this Google Sheets. And then we had to just launch a website. And that became a viable company. We picked up an attraction. We started working with funds. We started working mm -hmm. with, you know, VCs, with angel investors, with the general public, the government. We started working with all sorts of different wow. people in understanding the threat assessments to investors tracking when things go wrong, what happened, where mm -hmm. funds went, um, working with some exchanges to freeze funds and, you know, some of these malicious cases where we could. And we just kind of became this strange little security company that was very by the public for the public sort of mm -hmm. a thing. Like, you know, there's audit firms out there and, and they're technical code experts. They're paid by someone who mm -hmm. is developing a project to audit the code for them, basically. But it's not for an investor. Mm -hmm. It's for the project who's launching mm -hmm. it. So we really became this kind of like de facto by the people for the people security company. Yeah, we became the, yeah. the Switzerland of DeFi, I guess. Yeah, very and cool. And that's just that's so our listeners know, that's rugdoc.io, right? If they want to check it out. <laughs> Correct. And what, tell, what's the name? What's, tell us about the name. Why? Oh, what yeah, is it? Yep, that the name haunts me, and I love it. It's both. I, I hate it, and I love it. So in decentralized finance, when you get scammed, and again, scamming is such a common occurrence, unfortunately. Pretty much everybody who's been it for any amount of time will get scammed at some point, mm -hmm. unless you use RugDoc. <laughs> <laughs> it's called getting rugged. Because the rug gets pulled out. Uh, so you think you're investing in something secure. You think you're all fine and dandy. And the rug gets pulled out from under you and you get rugged. And yeah. you lose your can money you, and it's a bad time. Can you give us like a simple example of like how that happens? What in a contract or what in the, the code would cause that like the moment of the rug getting pulled out? Like how does it happen? Sure. The people who deployed the code to the blockchain could call a migrate function and then migrate your funds. Or they could call a withdrawal function and withdraw your funds. You could give them access to your personal wallet. So then they could drain your wallet of a specific type of a currency. And basically, they execute a function. So once they've deployed this code, they have a set number of functions that they can call, mm -hmm. depending on how they, they coded this thing. And so they can just call it. So they can say, migrate funds. And the funds that you deposited into this code, into this project, 
that you were expecting would sit there until you're ready to, to withdraw them mm. and earning interest or, you know, doing something, trading constantly. It's a bot that's trading things. All of a sudden, the funds that you deposited to this code, essentially, mm-hmm. moves them elsewhere to somewhere you can access it. I see. So it gets moved Migration. to somebody else's wallet, right? It'll migrate to so someone almost, else's wallet. Yeah, it's almost like malware. It'd be like if I bought SaaS and it was like it came with malware, and I just yeah. didn't know any better or something. Exactly, because yeah. you're not going through the actual code. You're just trusting right. that the software works as intended. It's the same thing here. So yeah, so people get rugged, hence the rug yep. port, and then you know. One, I am a doctor, and I also thought it was really funny because they have those carpet cleaners that I'll call, you know, like the rug doctors out there. And I was like, haha, this is a really stupid name. I am the rug doctor. I can clean your carpets. But then it That's became cool. an actual company, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's so great. And what would you have any advice, you know, other than obviously check out, it's, it's cool to just check out the website and see what you're doing, you know, in terms of how you're explaining risk and how you're evaluating the risk. But like, what about for our listeners that are like, yeah, I've heard about this crypto thing for a long time. I've wanted to get some assets, diversified assets in there. As somebody that was a skeptic that that eventually tiptoed into it and now has a company in the space, like what advice would you give for people that want to maybe try to get into this stuff? Yeah, of course. So I would say start small, you know, Mm -hmm. actually take your time. There's no reason to like fall into anything, especially when it's something new and a little bit strange. Take a small, losable amount of money, even if it's like $50. You can start small in DeFi. That's the thing, you know, you're mm-hmm. a direct investor. You know, there's no bank that's telling you or, you know, you don't have to be an accredited investor with, you know, minimum of a million dollars of assets. You, you, you can just invest $50 in something just mm-hmm. to see how it works. Watch it see what happens, like actually open up the contract when it pops up and it says like, give access to contract, actually open it up, like take a look at what these things look like. That's what Mm -hmm. I say, start small and actually try and like, take a look at how this works because you don't need to understand the language. I'm not saying you need to go learn Solidity or Rust or any one of these languages. Mm -hmm. But when you understand the broad flow of what's happening, you're giving permission to this program, the program has taken your finances, the finances are going here, and it's returning whatever your end result is, then that will really give you the understanding of what is decentralized finance, how you become the bank, more or less. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting. It's pretty fascinating because then it gives you insights into the actual financial system. When you're seeing a program move your funds around and you're giving these different permissions and you're getting these Mm -hmm. certain yields back, then you actually start to say, oh, now I suddenly understand how a bank works. I suddenly mm-hmm. understand what compounding interest is. I suddenly understand all these things that you kind of knew, but you didn't really know, probably. Right. Or maybe you just take for granted and sort of gloss over. But then once you understand them, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't fair. Like, yep. maybe. And it's- <laughs> right. Yeah. And it starts to make you in your actual life with just, you know, standard currency, do things probably a little differently. At least it did for me. So that's my best advice. Start small, actually understand what's going on. And that'll give you a lot more interest and and insight into how our actual financial system works and how you can benefit from it. (laughs) Yeah. Great. I love it. Great advice. What about in terms of more kind of high level, when you think about crypto and just DeFi kind of more generally, what... I love what you characterized earlier as like now is a time where there's actually applications can be built. And now this thing has more utility than just, you know, an exchange. 
what's getting you excited about the future for this space or the opportunities? Any kind of big ideas or big, uh, big visions you have for where some of this stuff could go? Sure. I mean, ultimately, we're in a really strange time right now, just because in general, the markets are, are a little peculiar in, in every field, definitely in crypto. They've been peculiar for like over a year at this point, because we are coming out of COVID, we have inflation, things are strange. But there is so much possibility in decentralized finance, not even completely, but being able to use these more streamlined direct financial systems you know, this really changes how we can move money, how we can invest, how a founder can fundraise even. There's Mm -hmm. so many different possibilities that are open here. And that's really what I'm looking forward to. I love being able to see things where you can truly crowdsource direct funding for people or for goals. You know, when there's a humanitarian crisis, and a lot of countries that don't have great banking systems or don't have great access to aid, you know, they've been able to use decentralized finance to crowdsource funds to directly work with whatever the crisis at hand is and pay it directly. So there's no more middleman. You're not sending funds to some like global organization who's deploying it to the national organization, who's deploying it to the local organization. You can immediately fund from everybody's pockets to the end goal right then, right there, 24 seven. That is fascinating to me. And it really is a game changer that people have barely tapped into. Sure. Yeah. It's, and I, I think like too, if you look at sort of the history of the evolution of currency and banks and, you know, it's like the only reason the system works as it is today is because of all these little cuts that everybody gets along the way. And then what that means is that there's probably, it, it pairs down the realm of what's possible to finance and for any number of reasons. But now like if you unlock microtransactions where anybody, right, anybody can invest. And so like the cost of a transaction goes to zero or near zero, right? And then also the, you know, the, the amount that gets netted out of a pool of capital goes to zero. And like now suddenly some new things are possible, right? It's kind of yep. fascinating world. Yeah. Yeah. You have a direct 100% of the funds given are instantly available to you because there is no more middleman. And again, it's 24 seven. So at 2am on a Sunday, you can directly send as small or as large of amount of funds yep. to wherever you're trying to send them. Yeah, so cool. that's really interesting. What about as somebody who's also really, really heavily focused, especially I, as I understand with a percent, you know, your time right now, a lot of it going to your real estate engine. Do you see any intersection between the two, between... You know, Absolutely. Like, I've been uh, able to move funds to put a down payment on the house at legitimately some absurd hour in the morning during a holiday because uh, I, you know, I've been able to cultivate certain banking relationships over my career, which are, you know, kind of non-traditional and are cool with my non occasionally non-traditional assets. And so I've been able to just like move funds immediately to where they need to go at some yeah. weird hour just because I had time. I didn't have to make sure I was at the bank before, you know, since we're in mountain time here before 4 p.m. on a weekday to like send my wire out. You know, I've been able to deal with some interesting things like that. There's also all sorts of things like fractionalized ownership that are going on based Mm -hmm. off of, you know, like blockchain assets. There's some people who are really starting to get into escrowing accounts in, you know, these decentralized assets or doing certain types of just like proof of ownerships through the blockchain because it's immutable. 
so there's lots of interesting intersection there. There's people who are funding entirely in like decentralized assets and then moving into real estate to again, like kind of diversify in the opposite direction. You see this in like these more crypto hotspots like Miami or, you know, even like El Salvador or in countries that have like slightly less secure financial systems than ours. You have people who are really tapping into buying whole houses in your decentralized assets, you know, trading houses as a decentralized asset, creating funds that are like, again, moving these decentralized tokenized houses and portfolios. So there's all sorts of crazy things that you can do because now you, the user, are the direct financial system. You're the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's Sky's exciting to think. Yeah, the, the realm of possibilities is literally endless. It's amazing. Yep. What about, I got two more quick questions. Uh, sure. Always like to kind of, you know, get maybe a little bit more personal on the last one or two. And for, for you, I'm curious, like, is there anything you're getting excited about right now? I mean, when we look at your career and like kind of what's ahead in the future for you, either, you know, personally, professionally, actually to rephrase this question, I'll just say, is there any maybe decision matrix that you're working on right now for something new? <laughs> any new decision matrices, matrices? Sure. Yeah. So it's not one in progress. It's one that was recently completed. I just launched a fund like in, in the last couple of months. Like, yep, we launched a fund based around our real estate portfolio. And that was another decision matrix. We we're like, okay, now we have these assets. They're houses. They have gained a lot of equity. That was the whole point. How do we access the equity and turn that mm. into liquid cash to do more? And so, yeah, we just launched a fund, which is really exciting because it's growing and it's new. And I am now learning how to be a fund manager, which is a whole new journey for me professionally, but a really cool one. It's an interesting yeah. place to be because now I get to dictate like how we're going to use the investment, what sorts of returns. There's a lot of paperwork that most people might hate, but I think are really cool because they have all sorts of analytics that I've never considered in them before. Working with like new partners on that because I really needed someone to help with the how do you launch a fund element. So I partnered with a hospitality group that I'm friends with, like someone who has a hospitality group, and then learning more about the hotel industry. Ah. So I don't plan to switch into the hotel industry, but it's really <laughs> interesting to learn more about how he, what the jumps in between what I do is like single family vacation homes in this fund into mm -hmm. how hotels actually run. And I've been like kicking around a couple ideas of, you know, maybe buying a particularly large cool property in somewhere like Whitefish and turning it into kind of like remote Airbnb sort of a thing, like or a real more a traditional B&B, I guess would be the thing. Yeah, but yeah. applying tech You're so that, you know, you just kind of remote check in with like, you know, your QR code or whatever. And it just like lets you in, it like unlocks the door, you can go to your room, you know, like creating these sorts of just like new vacation experiences and how I can kind of like scale up from single families to something a little bit different and bring it Super to Montana. Cool. Super yeah. cool. You know, speaking of diversifying investments, I probably need, I'm a little long on venture, but that sounds like something I would love to get in on right there. That's cool. Yeah, well, real estate. I, I love people who are motivated to reinvent the future of experiences. Like it's I have a couple of portfolio investments in that space. And it's like, that sounds really cool. I love it. I think it's Thanks pretty cool. Sharing. So I'm very interested yeah. in that. Yeah, very. Cool. I already found a Great. couple properties that are actually in Whitefish that would probably fit the bill. <laughs> All right. 
Well, we'll we'll be we'll watch closely to see, and that sounds exciting. The last question I have for you on today's show is really, as someone who has had an incredible career that I think only really makes sense when you look at the story backwards, what advice would you give to young people that are just getting started? They're in a Rust Belt town thinking about joining the military or whatever, not sure what they want to do. What advice would you have for people on navigating the path of their professional lives? Don't be scared to take risks. So that is the biggest thing that I've seen that have differentiated where I have wound up from, you know, what could have just been a standard career path. And there's nothing wrong with a standard career path. There's not. But I will say I very much have enjoyed becoming an entrepreneur and working for myself. And I have a very satisfactory work-life balance, which I cannot say for many people or what, when I was working for, you know, a traditional employer, I, have really enjoyed that experience. And if that is something you're interested in, you're probably going to have to take some risks. It's going to be scary. It's going to be weird. You're not going to know what you, the right step is. That That's that's okay. Mm-hmm. The whole point is don't be scared to make a mistake and take the risk anyways. Because what's... You know what? Decision matrices. Make some decisions. Yeah! You're at it too. Make some decision matrices. Oh, I love don't be it. scared to take risks. And make some good decision matrices because if you actually are honest about your decision matrix and your pros and your cons, you will see that very few things in life are truly disastrous, especially when you're young, because you have your whole life ahead of you to correct course if you do something silly. And usually the something silly that will, you know, chain that you're going to need to course correct for is not that bad in the grand scheme of things. If we consider the grand scheme of things being completely financially ruined and or death, right? Like, so let's put those in the extreme cons. Those are highly unusual circumstances. Statistically, you're probably not going to die and you're probably not going to be financially ruined for life. You might take a couple lumps. Hopefully you've risk adjusted for it, but take the risk anyways, because you know what, if it goes wrong, you can probably do something else and you have your whole life to do the something else. If it goes right, you could do something really, really unusual and cool and you will not know where your life's going to take you. And that is fascinating. Such good. That may have been one of the greatest pieces of advice to date on Found in the Rockies. And I mean that. That is awesome. That is awesome <laughs> because it's, yeah, it's not just risk, but it's it goes back to the calculated risk too, for sure. Yep. And, and clearly that's something you've done. By the way, I got to ask, uh, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to ask one more question. Did you put together a decision matrix for the decision to be on this show today? I did. I did. Yeah, I thought so. Because <laughs> if you did, that was a good matrix. That was a good one. I mean, what was the con? The con was I've spent one hour of my life talking about something useless, like, you know, like having a kind of strange conversation. That's not a con. That's like a bad first date. That's a date. That's the worst that's going to happen. Awkward first date situation. You have to have some weird conversation for an hour. Who cares? I've had way way worse experiences in my life. So, yes. Well, you've been such a fun guest, such an incredible guest and and super, super excited as a new friend in Bozeman to hang out and spend more time together. What, just to conclude the episode, could you just share with your, with our listeners a little bit more about you and where they can find you and RugDoc online? Totally. So you can find me through my LinkedIn, all boring like You can just search Leah Pagnozzi, P-A-G-N-O-Z-Z-I, spicy Italian last name on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to connect there. You can straight up email me at my first name, L-E-A-H-P-A-G-N-O-Z-Z-I at gmail.com. If you want to like just talk something weird and personal and have a little bit more of a long form for it, happy to respond to emails. Might be a little slow to respond, but I will get to you. 
or you can find my actual company if you're interested in learning more about decentralized finance at rugdoc, R-U-G-D-O-C.io. So rugdoc.io. You can find us on Twitter at Twitter rugdoc.io. You can look for us in real estate land at uh, Last Frontier Capital. So yeah, lots of ways to get in touch with me. That's and right. I'm always Last happy Frontier. to talk. That's right. Last Frontier Capital. You know, we were the next. Yeah, I'm the capital, last. You're the last. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I actually Lee. noticed that. I was like, I just, I didn't even think of that until now. That's funny. All right. Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much. It was great to have you. You're so welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time. Thank you.